morning, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to episode 239 of Canada's Pinball Podcast. I hope everyone out there had an amazing Mother's Day weekend. I spent a bunch of time with my mama. I love her more than anything. She's incredible. She is the reason I am the way I am. She's an incredible Sicilian woman, super strong, super powerful, and does whatever she wants in this world. And I love her for that spirit. So thanks, Mom, because I, I know you're not listening to this podcast. Um, what are we going to do on this episode of Canada's Pinball Podcast is I interviewed uh, Dave Sanders again from Highway Pinball. Now, Dave reached out to me and wanted to chat again. Uh, after he saw the Andrew Highway interview, he wanted to share more of his story. And I want to talk about, for just a few seconds, why I think it's important that we capture the stories from the people who were involved in Highway Pinball. And I know that there are some people out there, and you know who they are, the guys who live on their computers, live on Pinside. They're literally just, they need, they need to have people respond to their Pinside posts. They want this topic to go away. They want to just bury the story and move on. And here's the thing, here's the thing. This is a seven-year saga. And if you want it to just go away in like seven days after the company collapses, that's on you. But I think those people involved with Highway Pinball, they finally deserve to have their story told. And the reason why I feel that way is many of them were prevented from sharing their story with you uh, because of fear, because of NDAs, and other issues uh, that made these individuals have to bite their tongue all while they watched Andrew Highway uh, be the salesman, be the guy who was getting the pats on the back, be the guy who was uploading videos. So you're going to hear a lot from Dave Sanders of what it was like and what was going on at Highway Pinball and his reactions uh, to hearing the things Andrew said about his voluntary pay and stuff like that. And also just finally, uh, Dave Sanders is a friend of the show. And I've always been very friendly with Dave. and And I feel like talking and getting this stuff out there is very therapeutic and helps Dave. And I'm happy that we provide that platform. And, and, I, and I do. I think it's an important story to be told. And if you don't want to hear it, you can always turn off this podcast. But based upon my numbers, um, we are actually getting more people listening when we're covering this alien pinball debacle than some of the other shows we've done recently. So I think you also want to hear these stories as well. All right. Speaking of stories, I reached out to Stern Pinball with a very simple question. And I basically said uh, that I would love to interview Stern employees and designers and artists more often. And here's why. I said to Zach, I wrote to Zach and I said, Zach, you know, when George Gomez got up there at Texas Pinball Festival and he shared the story of what went into the making of Guardians of the Galaxy, I, I thought it was incredible. And we all know that Stern Pinball has all of these incredible, hardworking people coming together to make these pinball machines happen, happen on a frequent basis. You know, they're bringing the themes you love to life in a pinball machine. But I always feel like the stories that go into making these games are never really told. 
you know, it's like we know Stern's not on the forums. Um, we know that they don't always upload videos like the making of these games. And I just, for the life of me, I don't know why they don't wrap in, you know, they don't wrap these games within a context that makes you understand what went into making them. And here's why I think those stories are great, because when you hear the stories of what goes on to make these games, it gives you a more personal connection to the game itself, right? I think when we first had Christopher Franchi on here to talk about the making of Batman 66, what I love about that interview, and I do implore that Zach and Mr. Gomez and the people over at Stern, go listen to that interview uh, because Chris tells the true story of what went into making the game. And, and I'll tell you what happens when you listen to that story. You come out of that interview with a greater appreciation for what went into making the game, for how amazing it was that, you know, what he pulled off in such a short time period. And it makes you have a story to tell about the game itself. And that's what happened when I saw the Guardians of the Galaxy video of everything that went into making the game because uh, all that context was MIA or was not available to people when the game was revealed. And so it happens, right? A game gets revealed and you have all these people that are just looking at a rendering of a pinball machine and what happens? They start complaining about this or that or the artwork or that. You know, there's always that immediate um, feedback but what they don't have is John Borg talking to us about designing the game. You know, he's nowhere to be seen. We don't have Lyman Sheets talking to us about coding Batman and what his vision is for the game. Um, we don't have anybody really sharing these great stories. And, and I feel like the stories are lost. They're, they are lost and they are delivered well past um, the moment of excitement and hype that we have for these games, right? And, and I know that, uh, you know, it's, it's so to me, like when I interview Christopher Franchi, when I interview Zombie Yeti, when I interview George Gomez, when I interview Jack from Jersey Jack, I just feel like all the interviews I've done have been very positive. I don't think I've ever done an interview with anybody where, where someone would listen to it and say that I was disrespectful to say that uh, they came out of that interview feeling worse about the, the, the subject matter, right? So I interviewed, um, sorry, I, in, I emailed them asking to tell these stories and how I would love to use more of the airtime for this podcast to tell those stories. And I basically was told that no, not, it's not going to happen, that stern people are not going to come on the show. It's not the right time for it. And it was sort of like a blanket no that I, I saw so that I guess that means that Zombie Yeti is not going to be allowed to come on the show. Um, and I really do, you know, think it's unfortunate that Stern is taking this hardline approach with this podcast. I, I almost feel they're, they're perturbed by the show. And I get it. And I walk that fine line on this show of, do I, um, if I say things, and if I take a, a, an approach to how I deliver pinball news and my opinions about pinball, it is going to ruffle some feathers. So I have to do the juggling act, right, of do I do I take a softer approach on the manufacturers uh, in hopes that they will come on the show and I can interview them for you? Or do I tell you what I really feel? Do I deliver the show in a more hard-hitting way with more impact? And you know me. 
I'm always going to choose the latter. I don't want this show to become watered down and, and to hold back because I'm worried what the reaction is going to be at a certain manufacturer. And I think you listen to this show because of that. I don't think you want me to become um, you know, a shill for any manufacturer. And so I think that's, that's the way this show will remain. But I also implore Zach and George Gomez to go listen to all the interviews this show has ever done. Not only do they always get the most amount of people listening, uh, I also think it's highly, highly beneficial for Stern to engage a bit more, whether it's on this show or whether or not, you know, I think they're going to go on Christopher Franchi's um, podcast. Um, he's going to be interviewing them. And that's great. That's great. The thing about this too, and this is just me talking directly to Zach, like Stern has nothing to be defensive about, right? They, they, sure, they have some issues here and there that they'll deal with, but no one from Stern is going to come on and get grilled. And I'll tell you why, because Stern actually puts machines in boxes and gives people the opportunity to buy what they'd like multiple times a year. And for that reason, and that reason alone, um, I think Stern uh, is the only major pinball player in town. And I that's why I own Stern Pinball Machines. That's why if you ask me what machines am I most excited about coming out, it's Stern Pinball Machines. You know why? Because I am 100% certain they are coming out. You know, I think also what Stern gets mad about with this show is that I don't, I, I, I kind of spoil the party a little bit. And they're, they're, see, in their minds, they're trying to protect their IPs and protect their launch schedule and protect information about their games. And I get that. I get that. It, it is to no benefit for them to have stuff leak early. You know, they're still trying to find out how Ghostbusters leaked. Um, but now, you know, they, it, it's a thorn in their side that we are confirming on this show that Deadpool is next that uh, the Munsters is coming out in October. Uh, Expo, around the Expo time period, you're going to see both the Munsters and the Beatles, right? Those, that's going to happen. The Beatles is a kapow title. Now, look, I didn't start these rumors. Uh, these rumors are, have been out there for a while, and I, I know it upsets them. Um, it really upsets them that there's some visuals and images of those games that are out there. Um, visuals and images of those games that I will not share with anybody. Um, and that's just, see, that's the line that I won't cross, is, is doing something that's going to actually damage the company. Um, but it probably gives them a lot of anxiety that that stuff is out there. Um, and it shouldn't be. It shouldn't be. You know, I, at the end of the day, nobody who works at a company should share sensitive materials with anybody out there. It doesn't matter how excited you are to work on a project. It doesn't matter how excited um, you are about a title that's coming out down the road. Uh, being a professional in any industry um, requires that you put the company's best interests first, right? And I understand that. Like I work on projects all the time. And if people on my team shared um, what we were planning to do and it got out there, uh, I'd be fired. Our, our team would be fired. I mean, that's just the way the world works. And then there's a lot of lot at stake. But it's a little bit different in my industry. Like if I'm working on something for Budweiser and that leaks, that's a huge issue. If a pinball game leaks or images of a pinball game leak, it, it doesn't matter. Here's why it doesn't matter. There is no competition out there for Stern. 
There, there's none. There's a zilch. If a competitor of Stern learns what Stern is doing, um, there is nothing they could even do to mobilize and take advantage of that information. The o See, the thing is this. The only person it hurts is Stern themselves, that you will wait and hold on to your money and you'll wait for the next title if you know what it's going to be. Right. If you know the next title is going to be Deadpool and you don't really like Iron Maiden, uh, they still want you to buy Iron Maiden. And they don't want you to know what the next three titles are going to be because then you might hold on to your money for eight months versus spending it. And they know, Stern also knows, that you're effing addicted to buying pinball. That you might buy two or three if you don't know what all three will be at once. If we slowly trickle them out, you'll buy every one. All right. Let me stop there and just say, look, I would love for Stern people to come on the show. I would love for Zach and George uh, to allow the people who work at Stern Pinball to come on here and tell their stories. I think there's a great, passionate Stern buyer base that listens to every one of these episodes. And I think it's only to their benefit to get those stories out there. And I do think... Um, you know, they should compartmentalize the show a little bit in, in the sense that like Canada interviews are a little bit of a different show than Canada's just, you know, ranting and raving other episodes. Now, I do get that my ranting and raving episodes, it might just prohibit me from getting those interviews in the future. And there's nothing I can do because the show's not going to change. All right. What else is going on in the pinball world? I saw on This Week in Pinball, Robert Mueller said he might make a $50,000 game for me. Uh, Robert, that's awesome. Where can I pre-order that game? How much do you need down on that? <laughs> can you imagine that? 10% uh, down on a game could one day be $5,000. No. Look, do I think people would buy a $50,000 pinball machine only if you made a one-of-a-kind, big trouble in little China with full licensing rights would I spend $50,000 on a pinball machine? But even then, even then, it's just it's kind of getting stupid. I think the max price for a pinball game, I do. I think the most you can really ask for people to buy for a new inbox machine is between fifteen and $18,000. Now, again, it's all going to come down to supply and demand and what is the theme. Uh, it's People are not going to, you know, I don't, that's the thing. I, nobody wants to spend $12,500 on Pirates of the Caribbean. Nobody, like nobody. And I keep... I keep wanting to, to feel something more for that game. And I'll tell you why. Because I do think it looks awesome. Um, but when I just see Pirates of the Caribbean and I watch the gameplay and I see the $12,500 price tag, I, I just for the life of me, I don't get that I need to own this game no matter what it costs. And, you know, Jack just continues to not understand how to do the LE in terms of the pricing, Stern sold every single Iron Maiden LE, right? I sold mine for well above MSRP. Um, many others have sold theirs for well above MSRP. Stern knows how to make a game, 500 of them, that make more than 500 people say, I need to own this game and I'm willing to pay even more than what Stern thinks it's worth. And then guess what? They sell every one, all right? Now I'm here to also tell you that I got a little information on Iron Maiden LE that the decals on the side of the game, they are, they are not the same metallic decals that are on Batman SLE. And I, can't, I kept trying to look at them like, is it like Batman? Does it have like the texture? Does it have like the depth? Um, and, it, and I heard from a friend of mine who has both Iron Maiden LE and Batman SLE and says they're nowhere near 
as nice as the Batman decals. I think they're more... I also heard that they're not even as, like, impressive as the decals on on um, Iron Man Vault Edition, that that actually has even more of a metallic foil look to it. Uh, it doesn't change the fact that I think the artwork is effing amazing, and I and I'm, I am jelly watching you guys open your Iron Maiden LEs. I think the game looks phenomenal, all right? All right. Let's read some mail. Then we're going to do the interview with Dave Sanders, and I think you're going to enjoy it. Uh, and then I got to go to work um, and hit the gym maybe sometime today as well. Uh, let's see. All right. I got an email. Do, 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 do. Okay. Here we go. From Hugh. Um, Hugh, thank you for listening to the show. He said, TNA uses P-Rock. The first thing that Jerry developed was the P-Rock board set, which Scott used to develop TNA. Yeah, maybe Lexi isn't that interesting, but at least give Jerry accolades for what he did for the homebrew makers. Without Jerry, there would be no TNA. Alice Cooper and American Pinball used the boards as well. All right, I also got the same sort of email from Tim Went uh, about the irony of Multimorphic and how Jerry's system also powered the game TNA and, and American Pinball and other games as well. And so here's why those emails came in. Because I said that Jerry, when he made Multimorphic, should have just um, made a game the way Scott did and used parts off the shelf and made a pinball machine and had people buy it. And then that was seven years ago or six years ago, right? So... And, and then people reminded me that without Jerry's P-Rock system, there would be no TNA. So I, I appreciate that. And yes, I will give Jerry the accolades for making um, the P-Rock engine. And I think that engine has led to so many fun um, homebrew and, and sort of small boutique pinball ventures. But here's the thing. Here's the thing, guys. So where did the, where did the, um, where did the, oh, I'm trying to find the right word. Where did the, um, lack of vision occur right so jerry makes the engine and then when he goes to make a car that is going to use that engine the wheels fall off right nobody's buying it so that is to me the real sad part about all the time and effort jerry has put into the hobby is he built this engine that can make a pinball machine and then the pinball machine that he decides to make around that engine um, is not attracting buyers. Uh, and Jerry's an engineer, right? He, and he gets the engineering side of pinball. And P3 Multimorphic, I mean, it is an engineering feat. Nobody doubts that. Nobody denies that. But sometimes all the engineering ability in the world doesn't matter if you don't have a creative vision that people want because it's the creativity that sits on top of the engineering that is what emotionally pulls people in. All right, I, have an, I had an old guy I used to work with. His name is Cliffy B. You, you, don't, you might know him, you might not. But Cliffy B works at a company called Epic Games. And I used to work on their brand. And I used to, uh, and they made the Unreal Engine. And the Unreal Engine powered almost all the first-person shooters and all these other video games. And they would make a fortune licensing out that engine. Um, but they also made their own games, like Gears of War, right? And they also, I just saw, like, they made this other game called Fortnite recently. And this is the thing. It doesn't matter how good the engine is that powers the toy. The toy itself 
needs to be amazing and pull people in. And that's that's just my my overall take on, on P3 and multimorphic is all this engineering went into something that will sell less games than WWE. And you and, and I just don't know how you justify all that time, money, and effort when the marketing research they should have done to put them in more of a position to succeed was somehow just not considered. Like, how do you get in a room and say, well, what do people really want? You know, someone told me this, and this is the other thing that I I think matters the most. And this is where Stern just gets it right. You got to sit in a room and say, we're going to make a pinball machine. We're going to make a pinball company. What do people want? What do people want to buy? What do people need in a pinball machine to get them excited? Right? And I think that is what P3 and Multimorphic doesn't really like. They haven't nailed that. I also think the other company that suffers from that is Jersey Jack Pinball. And, I, and I've heard this from many people out there. Is When they sit in a room and you've got Jack and you've got Keith and you've got the people at JJP, I don't think they really understand the, the basic fundamentals of what people want from a pinball game. All right, I want to look at a pinball machine and I want to know what to do without even having to, to be told what to do. And I think when you look at Jersey Jack machines recently, I don't think they accomplish that. I don't think you can stand over Pirates of the Caribbean and know what you're supposed to do. You need to have this like tutorial on what to shoot at, uh, you know? So I think they get that part of it wrong. I also think when you start to get to like the rules and like, okay, well, if you're going to explain to someone what you want to do in this game, um, can you explain it to them in a few sentences? Uh, let me let me explain that you here. Um, you look at there's a big Groot head on the center of the play field uh, and it looks like you could shoot its mouth. If you shoot the mouth three times, the you know, the, or if you shoot it twice, the mouth opens up, you shoot it in again, and then it starts multi-ball. All you got to do is shoot straight up the middle of the game. I could explain that to anyone, and at least they can have something fun happen in their pinball machine um, that is enjoyable, right? In, in just a few minutes, those people can be experiencing something that gives them some wow. Um, Talk to me about what I do in Pirates of the Caribbean. What would I tell someone if I was standing next to them is the thing that they're supposed to do that's easy to understand, almost doesn't even need to be explained. They would just walk up there and figure it out. And that's that's the thing. Stern knows that. Stern knows that if someone walks up to Batman 66, if someone walks up to Iron Maiden, if someone walks up to Guardians of the Galaxy, if someone walks up to like, you know, Star Wars, like they're going to be able to figure out what to shoot at without any any tutorial. And I think that's, to me, why when you look at the Bally Williams era of games and you look at the reason why people even still love John Papadou games, it is simply because they're the kinds of games where uh, without anyone telling you what to do, you can figure it out on your own. It's intuitive and it creates a wow moment without even needing, without even needing like, oh, I have to pick between 22 characters? I mean, the moment you have someone trying to pick 22 characters with Pirates of the Caribbean, you've already lost like 98% of casual people who will walk up to that game. And that's the thing is like, everyone is just trying too hard to make these things too complex, too confusing, and, and, and layer so many things on top of pinball machines. They don't need it all. They don't. And I think JJP would be more successful if you would make these games more intuitive. Same with all the other people out there. It's just when it's just too, too confusing on what to do, uh, I, I, I don't know. I, I don't know. I don't think that's what pinball needs. All right. 
Okay, I'm, I'm going to stop rambling. See if there's any more emails before I air this interview. Uh, let's see. Do, 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 do. Christopher Franchi's pinball tips. We're going to start making a, a Franchi moment, a silent moment happen in, in every podcast. All right, let's see. I got an email from Joshua Henderson. He said, hi, Chris. Um, I've been listening to your podcast for a while. Despite knowing that you're banned from Pinside and Clob and keep hearing people discuss you negatively, I still can't help but check back for new episodes. Being proactive um, can and will ruffle feathers, and I agree with George Gomez calling you out, but at least you're offering a unique, if blunt, perspective on the hobby. It's neat that the pinball podcast out there seem to have varied styles of presentation and personality. You've mentioned that you've owned a Lord of the Rings. I currently own a home-use-only Lord of the Rings and Simpsons Pinball Party, two of my personal favorite games. Love the artwork, theme integration shots, gimmicks. Also excited about Batman 66 with Lyman, um, committed to completing it. I personally like games with deep rules. I've been a tournament player since a young age and enjoy the strategy, but I'm also a small collector who's lately been putting most of his money towards college. So I can't own that many machines. That's why longevity in the few games I do own is important to me. I'm fortunate that I got into pinball by meeting people face-to-face and not through an online forum. I personally think Pinside has a wonderful mod community and tech advice. Just don't like the witch hunt towards new users. I was subject to one a day or two after joining. I had to defensively reveal my identity, maybe a sign that I should have deactivated my account sooner. Also not a fan of the moderation. Wouldn't mind talking pinball with you sometime, Josh. All right, Josh. Well, thank you for the note. I really appreciate it. We'll definitely get you on the show. Look, I, I, you know, I didn't address my last podcast and, and where I do sort of outline specifically um, the bias by the pin side moderators, but you guys all know that. You know that I'm not some big, like, evil person. I love how Robin tries to hide behind. Well, because he was banned on other forums, like, that's proof that he's just not a good apple, you know? Look, I think you know, I think you know that online forums are places in which moderators and 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 the people who run these sites they would like to control the conversation they would like to control it the same thing's happening on all the other forums i'm on i'm on the dodge demon forum you know i got banned from that because i don't love everything about the dodge demon and you know what they do then they ban you because they only want people cheerleading the product and that's just the funniest thing about forums is you know, there there's supposed to be this place where you can come and like share your opinions, um, but for a lot of the forums out there, they really only want the opinions that they want to hear. And Robin and the moderators, they've decided to back certain individuals and allow them, allow them to just do whatever they want. Like they'll allow Hilton, they'll allow Iceman, they'll allow these hyper users to fly off the handle, to shill games that have cost people thousands of dollars, and this guy, who's trying to help you out, who's trying to point out um, the reality of what's going on in this hobby, and not just that, is I think what I try to do too is get at the root of what it means to be a grown adult who's obsessed with collecting pinball machines and how that's not always a great way to live your life. How you should put more things in your life in front of pinball and hyper-focusing and making pinball the center of your world isn't like a good way to live life like life should have more balance 
than just the amount of hours these guys spend on pin side. I guarantee you, for a lot of the people and the moderators and Robin, like think about it for a minute. Pin side is Robin's life. Like that's his job. Like he doesn't go into another office. Like he wakes up every day and is like working on pin side. I can't imagine living that kind of life. And so the moderators out there, think about those people too. Like what a thankless kind of crazy job to have to weed through tens of thousands of posts to then moderate them would be a lot easier. See what they should do. And it's fine. I'm, I'm fine being banned. What they should do is just ban all the troublemakers. And then there's no real moderation that has to happen. He could have a simple policy. We are not here to talk smack about manufacturers or individuals. If you, if you, if you one personal insult or threat or derogatory thing, about another user and you're banned from the site. It's okay to question a pinball company's uh, ethics and operations, that is okay. Um, but the personal attacks and the slander and the fighting, that will not be tolerated, all right? And then you get banned, cool, cool. All right, let's air this interview with Dave Sanders. I think it's great, I think you're gonna enjoy it. Everyone have a happy Monday. Uh, we're getting to that time of year again where there's not gonna be any pinball news for a few weeks, if not months, uh, until we see Monster Bash remake, I don't. This summer is going to be the summer of Iron Maiden, of Monster Bash remake, and Deadpool at the end of the summer, and then hopefully Pirates of the Caribbean sometime soon. But again, I implore all of you to play less pinball when the weather is good. We are on a rock, hurling through space, and life. There's so much more than just pinball. I, I literally, I just, I, I think some of you, as I read the form and I read the negativity and I read like the dumb conversations, like how stupid is a conversation questioning whether or not Queen is a good band? Queen is one of the greatest bands of all time. If you can't appreciate Queen music, like I don't even know what's wrong with you. Freddie Mercury is probably one of the most talented composers and songwriters that has ever walked the face of the earth. In fact, I will say that I think Freddie Mercury is more talented than, than John Lennon and more talented than Paul McCartney. I, I, he's just up there. Like the, his style and his variety of music, no, no one's, I don't think anyone's even come close. And the kinds of musicians that he inspired, one of them is my favorite. Is, he goes by the name of W. Axl Rose. If you go watch the Freddie Mercury tribute concert and listen to Axl Rose and Elton John sing Bohemian Rhapsody, you will understand while Freddie Mercury music, I mean, it's so much better than Iron Man in music, it's so much better, so much more culturally relevant uh, than anything Iron Maiden ever did, all right? Queen forever. But that doesn't mean anyone's going to buy that pinball machine because the pinball brothers, man, people don't have memory loss. They're not going to go in on that game. All right, later, guys. Here's Dave Sanders. All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to Canada's Pinball Podcast. Dave Sanders, the previous designer over at Highway Pinball. Um, Dave, welcome back to the show. Yep. Uh, yes. Uh, How's it been, Dave? Uh, so, Dave, let's start off by saying, how do you feel since we've last spoken? Um, I know you were hesitant to sort of come forward with your story, and since then you have, and a lot's happened. How do you feel about the communities um, rallying around you in the last couple weeks? Absolutely blown away. Um, it gave me something that. Um, I never felt that I had for a long time. I mean, 
going back to b- before Highway Pinball, so I, I, I don't, I, it gave me a sense of support, um, a sense of value, if you like, because um, I don't have the best self-esteem issues anyway. And uh, actually, I think I will touch on this. I said last time when I came on, one of the first things I, I, I briefly touched upon was that when I when I first um, got in contact with Andrew, we both got interested in the uh, in a pinball project that I was in a dark place. I think for context sake, let me just tell you a little bit about that, where I was coming from. Sure. Because, sure. yeah, because uh, um, being on the autistic spectrum, being diagnosed with Asperger's and the related um, anxiety problems and everything else like that, uh, shit went wrong at one point in, in my adult life. And, and what happened as an upshot of that was um, I was persuaded when my anxiety problems were really getting bad to go into sheltered accommodation for a year as a kind of, you know, group therapy sort of thing. What that actually meant for me was... um, it meant being being in a tiny flat in a large building surrounded by people, no offense to them or anything, but they were representing the very, very worst of what I was seeing in myself at the time. I mean, we're, we're talking about people like recovering alcoholics, um, self-harmers, um, former drug users all just you know trying to mend themselves but it, um I, I was getting kind of you know freaked out by um how can i possibly put this where i'm not trying to put uh, trying to put them down or anything i i just reacted badly to it because right. i was i i was taking on board their problems and they were mixing in with, with with mine and it was not doing me any good and and i felt so you know trapped in there and after a while it started to feel like you know like one step above being sectioned and i wasn't claustrophobic before i um be- before i moved moved there but by Christ, I was by the time I came out. Right. So yeah. How did so, you? So Dave, how did you find like? How did you find out about the opportunity to work at Highway Pinball? Like, Andrew approached me via the UK Pinball News Groups. Um, he wanted to do something with, uh, with pinball, but he knew that then wasn't the right time. This would have been around two thousand nine, two thousand ten. So Highway Pinball was being planned for at least two years before we actually made the move to um, Wales. And he was doing the UK Pinball Party um, uh, still at, uh, at that point, just the, uh, the, sh- um, the Daventry shows in uh, August. So um, I do remember um, one time where we, we, he was putting up machines and I um, 
and he was talking over um, possible names for uh, such a venture. And uh, see, at the time, this was even before um, J-Pop and Jersey Jack. Jersey Jack might have been uh, just starting. Uh, I think the only people who um, had really put their hat forward was Quetzal Pinball at that time, the Spanish guys who had started doing the, the, uh, the Captain Nemo thing. And they were in the very early stages. So there wasn't a great deal of competition. It was, it was, it was mainly stern. And um, one of the names, he was talking about names, and he thought of the name Phoenix Pinball. And I thought, well, no, A, that's pretentious. And B, it kind of implies that um, if we did this and we weren't a success and, uh, and we went down, it, I mean, it's the Phoenix. If we went down, it, it would imply that we'd take everybody else down with it. Um, so, so I didn't like that name. I, and I just told him, well, what's wrong with calling it Highway Pinball? I mean, it's, it's, it's your name. You've traded under that name before. Um, pinball companies are predominantly named after the founder. I just don't see the, 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 the um, I don't just don't see anything wrong with Highway Pinball. So highway pinball it was uh but yeah we were planning and we were doing sort of like um potential designs and things for uh for a good couple of years before before we actually took the plunge right. anyway. since we last talked because I, I i i really want to get what went through your head when you read the interview that pinball news put up with Andrew because you are mentioned in it multiple times uh, specifically on the issue of voluntary work uh, that Andrew can continues to uh, say that you really wanted to work as a volunteer without any pay so I would love to just get your opinion on that uh, okay that's this is getting onto the whole HMRC thing. Okay, by he and I are obviously using different definitions of what voluntary actually means. I put up a post about this on our pin side, where he's right in the sense that being an Asperger's person, I always work best under my own hours and my own time, and. Uh, my things like my sleep pattern don't work like other people's do. So when I get uh, engrossed in a project, I also like work on it for hours at a time, but it'll always be my own hours. It'll t tend to be on the, during the night. So I don't fit the nine to five cubicle model. So um, I would, I'd be absolutely useless at Stern, for example, because that's uh, they, from, uh, from the accounts I've heard, they use the, the cubicle system quite a bit so i wouldn't fit into something like that now working on your own hours working on a project working to a deadline i call that freelancing um and i said as much to him uh before i mean uh what what's wrong with you know giving me a freelance kind of uh contract under that basis because because that's what um pinball brothers that's what we were actually trying to um sort out once the uh investors took over but uh <sighs> and and that never materialized so when you suggested that and it makes sense that 
you know, you'll be paid for your hours worked, even if those hours aren't happening, you know, at a traditional, you know, nine to five rate, um, you're still working. Well, it's more like, it's more, I wanted to, it's more like what he was doing with um, Barry Owsler, where Barry would get a sort of like a a monthly retainer uh, fee, and it would be done on sort of like a, a, well, it should be done on a project by project basis. Um, but, uh, yeah, uh, I never wanted to do the, uh, royalties thing because that meant that, um, my work in itself would not have any intrinsic value unless the manufacturing and the sales side of the business were, uh, equally up to the task. I wouldn't get any money unless he sold anything. And uh, I was, I was, I was not having that. I, that was, it, it was making me assume the risks of the business when it wasn't my business. Right now, uh, Dave, I want to ask you something because Andrew says, and I just want to, I actually want to quote him word for word, um, that Dave preferred to have higher royalties instead of becoming a shareholder. Is that is that accurate? Um, it's accurate in the sense that I wanted royalties per se slightly less no, no, slightly more than I wanted shares which was zero shares would have been goddamn useless to me because um, shares over here um, count as savings and savings are used to calculate things like um, your uh, entitlements to a benefit safety net if you need it. So what on earth would have been the point of me taking shares that I couldn't cash, but at the same time <clears throat> would have um, blown my safety net um, <clears throat> had, uh, had I had to leave? I think it was his way of trying to tie me down because I, I, um, I mean, I know he wanted, I mean, we, we wanted loyalty from each other. I know he wanted me on board for X amount of time, but he, he didn't have to, um, it wasn't the sort of thing that he really needed to sort of like ask or do or, 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 or put pressure on to achieve because I mean at that point I mean where the hell else was I going to go so mm. well David let me ask you a question so like you know when you read the interview and and Andrew says a lot and another thing that he says in the interview is that when the investor group took over uh, they spent three months evaluating the viability of highway pinball and so they do you feel that the investors knew everything they needed to know before Andrew exited or do you feel they were sold a bag of goods that wasn't accurate which led to the their problems trying to course correct the company once Andrew exited well it's looking back on it with hindsight i mean it's not really a question is it uh at the time at the time, uh, I think we were we were um, uh, 
I think we were just kind of conf- uh, more confident just to actually have that the, the, that changeover to uh, a bunch of people who actually had money. At the start, um, uh, I think a lot of us felt that, you know, if we just had the capital investment, I mean, Andrew had always said about capital investment, getting over that final hurdle to get us to um, full production. And I guess we were, we, we were thinking like, well, if we just had that capital investment, we would ultimately be um, all right. Of course, uh, none of us in the upstairs department had um, access to the figures. So things like our overheads, for example, um, I mean, we knew our overheads were high. We knew that there were certain things that we had that we weren't using, but we had no idea of the uh, of the the, the the scale, just the just just the sheer scale of of how much money was that the the, the, um, the company really was leeching um, at that time. Uh, were you Dave? Were you able to look at? I know recently, the as the liquidation process is going on, the actualities are starting to come out in terms of what those numbers were. I'm looking at right now the uh, 2016 balance. It looks like the gross profit for that year was 19,506 pounds and the operating cost was 276,145 pounds. Mm. I mean, you know, the, the cost of operation was significantly um, exceeding any money coming in. And that's, that's the, the Production that does still, sound right, yes. Was there any point, Dave, too, because you know you were around when you know Andrew was uploading these production videos and factory tours that always seemed a little strange. Did he ever ask you or did you ever get the sense that he was trying to stage those videos to convince people things were okay when really they weren't? Well, we knew what the, the videos were for. We, we knew he was... Tr- um, he was trying to it wasn't so much about just confidence it was just, he was just trying to um it was him being the salesman um and him uh being the 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 the, the showmanship and it was it, after a while i mean we would just sort of like you know let him get on with it cuz i mean there wasn't much that um that we could say about it anyway I mean, the the instance where uh, Andrew was showing off, trying to show off the fiber optic lighting on Alien, and was it the white lighting or was it the black lighting that um, uh, he had threaded up on the machine? Because we were at, we were actually trying to um, see what we could do with black fiber optics, and if we we if we'd have got that to work. I think that would have looked good on the machine because it was nice and subtly. It wouldn't have drawn attention to itself um, when the machine was off. You wouldn't have seen these big white wires everywhere that wouldn't have fitted in with the atmosphere of the theme. But, you know, showing off and showmanship, I mean, that's what Andrew was all about. So, yeah, he was staging this... um, staging these uh, videos like that where he'd walk through the factory and talk. And I know Russell in particular, 
his thoughts were, why the hell is he showing everybody the empty factory? Um, but, but yeah, but yeah, I mean, I, I mentioned it. I mentioned this particular one because that was also the one where he had one of the Hungarians lying down on, on one of the benches just as a, a as a visual gag. Uh, I think it was it was Chubb with um, the face the plastic face hugger on his face, and Andy was just walking past that and and talking. Uh, as like the preamble to um, his latest talk about alien and the fiber optics lighting and everything. And we were just sort of like, everybody was downstairs watching this and some of them were shaking their heads. Uh, and then when it finished, everybody went upstairs back to their own departments, um, not quite believing some of what they'd actually seen. And... Chubb was still lying there with that face hugger on his face. And I went over to him and I just told him, chin up, mate. You're not the only person uh, down here sitting around doing nothing and feeling like a tit. <laughs> yeah, that was the Alien Day video uh, in 2016 when he revealed the the Brian Allen artwork and the, and the fiber optic cables that were in the game. And... You know the, the fiber optic cables. Yeah, I remember the the Brian Allen artwork. I I still don't understand the 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 full story about that. Right. Well, what we've heard from Oric is that you know Andrew sort of went around his back and and hired Brian Allen. Uh, Andrew actually said in the interview that he wasn't satisfied with Oric's artwork, and that's why he did that. I know that Brian Allen. I I actually had him on the show, and we talked and. And yes, he, he was. He was another yes, one who he wasn't paid for his work, and he got really nervous, and he was upset. And I think, I think, finally, he got made whole. So, Dave, what's also interesting about this latest sort of development, and there's a lot of finger pointing between Andrew and the investor group. I, mm. I'd love to hear what the mood was like when the investor group took over. Like, did they call everyone into the room, and and how did you guys sort of? Uh, how did you set a plan of action to try and get the games going? I mean, they, they were there for almost a year after Andrew exited. Oh, how much of this, how much of this do I remember? I think that, uh, to begin with, it was just, um, it was just a feeling of, um, relief that finally, perhaps we were going to get somewhere. The, the organization that we got was mostly in um, moving forward with um, game three and how we were going to start, you know, uh, approaching that, what work had been done with that um, and um, what needed to be uh, done with the design. Uh and also the the the, the influence that uh, Andrew had had on certain elements of the uh, the, the design field, we needed to uh, we um, so the game needed work, Dave, and, and the game needed work because Barry the, the feedback that Barry was getting had not been good for our Queen. Um, I'm. I mean, everybody knows it's Queen. 
everybody, everybody knows it, it, it would have been Queen. Um, <sighs> who is Barry getting that feedback from? From people who had seen it or, or just from... Were they polling? We would, we would, we would have Skype meetings uh, once a week. It would be myself and Andrew and Barry and Russell and James would uh, get, uh, be there as well. Um, but at one point, Barry had three designs on the go at one time. And that's too much for any one person to be able to give uh, their full attention to each. I mean, Russell's complaint on This Week in Pinball was that he, he felt that Barry didn't do very much. Well, that wasn't the case. Um, Barry was actually having to expend far more effort on the amount of work that he was given than uh, otherwise sh should have been. Because uh, sometimes... For certain things, the uh, brief would change from week to week when Andrew would come up with ideas. Well, I, I rather like the idea of this. Can you squeeze this into the game? So Barry would have to take the design, um, move stuff around, shove stuff over so we could fit another new idea in. What Barry did not have with Queen was a set pool of ideas to begin with that he could then design the play field around. He didn't have the ideas as the starting point. And when I um, knew the game needed work because it was way, way, way more complicated than uh, it needed to be, I took the ideas and I said, well, OK, Keeping to Barry's flow as much as possible, what can be stripped out of this without compromising the game? And it turned out um, quite a lot could. Um, the, the game, the design that Barry was clearly having the best time with in, in as much as uh, he was putting... Uh, more of himself into. He was allowed to put more of himself into from the off. Ironically, it was Playboy, probably because uh, so few of the design uh, team here wanted to touch Playboy with a barge ball. So we were prepared to let um, Barry sort of like get on with it. Um, Andrew was more focused on Queen and the other game anyway. Um, I'm pretty sure it's been leaked by this time what sort of other game it was, right? You, uh, you've got a good idea of what it would have been? The, the, the title besides Queen and Playboy? Yes. Um, I think it's been on there. What... What's the genre? Um, oh. Is it a movie? It's not a movie. It's, it's the unlicensed game that we're talking about. Uh, was it the the carnival game? It's the funfair game. Yes. The funfair, yeah. It was, it was the six. Yeah. See, I, I wanted to know how much you actually uh, so like knew, so I knew what I could say, what, uh, and that you was, know, just in case, just in case things come to fruition in the, in the future. You know? Right. And that was, that was John Trudeau's game. 
Ah, uh, no. John Trudeau's game was the Mardi Gras-style carnival. Ba uh, Barry's game was the um, funfair one, his, the, like the successor to uh, Hurricane. And he, uh, he and I, he and I, both had um, a lot of ideas for you know the sort of things that modern funfairs had that could that could be um, put into that game. What happened with that particular game out of uh, at the very early stage was Andrew um, uh, Andrew put his demands on the table very very early for that game. So even before Barry had even started designing uh, anything for that particular game, uh, Andrew had decided right, I want a fourteen ball multi ball in that game so that I can uh, so that we can break Apollo 13's record. The, and that was that was literally the reason he wanted it. Just for a 14-ball multi-ball. Just for a 14-ball multi-ball. No context, just... I mean, Apollo 13 has the... You know, has 13 in the title. So it aesthetically justifies itself that way. But 14 balls on this game. And uh, he want, also wanted the game to have some kind of... Um, ski lift type mechanism that would in, uh that would deliver the excess balls into play um and lock them somewhere so um so andrew has these ideas but he but dave he has no background in engineering or electromechanical anything right so he's just sort of throwing a a crazy vision out there and just expecting you guys to make it yeah, to a degree, yes. Um, it's not like it's not like all his ideas um, were bad, but some of them were ideas that weren't cost uh, wouldn't absolutely would not have been uh, cost effective, or if they'd um, broken down, would have absolutely killed a game on location. It would have rendered an entire game inoperable. Um, and fixing the things was, uh, was a night would have been a nightmare. Um, Can you imagine trying to take fourteen balls out of the the ball? Is well, it, <laughs> it would it wouldn't it wouldn't have been a ball trough. That's the that, that's the point. I mean, we had a six ball ball trough, and this ski mechanism would have been for holding and delivering all the other balls. Ah. So so. Um, you, you launch a new ball into play, it would come off this ski lift and uh, and onto the um, uh, one of the ramps and into play that way. Um, even if it had worked, that kind of delivery would have been slow. And uh, but Andrew said, Andrew was saying, well, it's a novelty; it's never been done before. People, uh, people it, it's got. He loved the phrase "the wow factor." I grew to hate that phrase. <laughs> But the the wow factor on this game would have been the ski lift. But I knew and Barry knew that the novelty of that would, would wear off so goddamn quickly once you'd seen a few balls come into play and, and a couple. It would if you thought the double Ferris wheels on Hurricane were bad for being slow. Right. At delivering the ball back to you, just imagine how frustrating this ski lift would have got very, very quickly. Dave, so, what, was, what was the wow factor on on Queen? You said there was a lot in that game. What was like the one like that's the wow that he that Andrew was looking for? Uh, 
Well, ooh. See, you're, now you're getting... Um, yeah, uh, this is getting into sort of like, you know, crossover territory with what might happen in the future. I don't know for sure what Pinball Brothers pla uh, plans um, are going to be. I do know that uh, if they do decide to continue with it, they will be doing they will be doing everything that Andrew did and throwing that out the window as far as presentation and marketing goes. So they would be going, you know, quiet for some time and then unveiling the game when it's finished, when it's in a presentable state, when they when they say, OK, we've got this product. You can see it now. It works now. Now you can buy it. You know the way it, the, the the way it should be done. So okay, not to, not to have you yeah, not, not, so not I to don't have you say, say anything about how right. um, Queen, what the wow factor on Queen will actually be because we still we still might end up doing it and I still might end up being the one who sure. um, is going to design that game because I don't know who else right. they'd actually be at this point in time. Everything's up in the air. I mean, I do still have the uh, contract uh, in play with them. So this might come about, this might not come about, but either way, you probably won't hear about it for some time. And okay. that's really the way it should be. Sure. No, totally. Plus, totally. I respect yes. that. Dave, let me ask you a question because I think a lot of people are trying to come to grips with with who Andrew is. And I think a lot of people interacted with him at shows and they, they got, as you would say, the, the salesman side of Andrew, which, which was usually very jovial, very friendly. Um, the second he got your money, he would oftentimes disappear from communicating with people. Did Andrew ever have another side? Did he ever have like... Uh, an aggressive sort of hostile sort of short temper um that you employees saw but but he hid from the rest of the world i'm afraid so um <laughs> there's no point in denying it because everybody any everybody who knows andrew and is familiar and with andrew um knows he has uh the uh the, the that that more uh, aggressive and forceful side to him anyway so if i weren't go if i didn't tell you a dozen other people would you probably have heard uh from uh certainly on pinball info this uh i'm uh, i think this has been touched upon but yeah there were times in, in the very first unit that we uh that we had in uh, Unit 9 in the Savartha Estate. Uh, fairly small unit, and Andrew had the upstairs office, and the sound of his voice would carry. And the arguments that he would have over the uh, phone with people, they became legendary. Um, the stuff of nightmares almost uh, sometimes. They were just... They were just so pervasive you couldn't you you, you, you any way you were in the unit you would you, you would you would hear it and you would hear it clearly and you would know who he was talking to so somebody who was disagreed with the um with the way that uh the he was doing things or if one of the other one actually did 
feel slighted right. or would, yeah would, would he get in, would he be yelling at suppliers at ex-employees at i mean who 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 brought out the most vitriol from andrew uh, publicly or privately privately it would have been um well you right. <laughs> you were definitely one of them ex-employees were uh de- um were the other ones um Pub- uh, he wasn't trying to be public about it. It's just that we could hear him over the uh, um, uh, over the phone. He just wasn't good at hiding it, if you see what I mean. Right. Well, and he's, he's, he's in the interview. He's actually listed myself and Owen um, Rubber Ducks on Pinside as individuals yes. that he is openly pursuing a, a legal action against, which is a little laughable. To someone like yes, me. it's 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 ridiculous. I mean, he, even if he could, the libel laws here and the libel laws in the states are chalk and cheese. Um, you couldn't pursue this sort of thing anyway. I mean, he was he was threatening to get onto you and Meadows' case for years, even after you and Meadows had uh, got, uh, gone to Australia. Um, Andrew was. Uh, Andrew's um, thinking was, well, he's violated the terms of his NDA. I'd still get him for that. Um, it was pretty clear once the uh, investor group started taking a look at Andrew's NDAs that, well, they weren't worth the paper they were written on. Well, what they were was they were NDAs not to share information on the games being worked on. That's what people signed. These aren't yes. NDAs that they weren't allowed to share, like the fact that you know the business practices might be in question, or the you know the time. Yeah, it's the a, ti- that's well, not. He, that, that's Andrew exactly thought it. everything was covered. Yeah, well, that's exactly it. This is the difference between fact and opinion, and this is what always gets muddled in this sort of thing when when people talk about libel. What is libelous? What isn't? If you're trying to say, state something as fact. That is a, an entirely different matter from stating something as personal opinion. This is how, for example, Fox News gets to say as much as they do, because it's um, it's presented as opinion based. That's I mean, that's that's what punditry is. It's opinions. News is news. Punditry is opinions. That is the difference. Right. Well, it's interesting too. If you, if you I mean, I, obviously, I've covered Highway for 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 almost two years, and while I have delivered most of my opinions about Highway Pinball, I have also delivered um, some factual, incredible information about the business state of the company. And what's 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 funny to me is, in the end, the stuff I had was accurate. I mean, so I, I think Andrew would be he would have a hard time going before any legal body and saying that me or Owen was fabricating the realities of his company when we're looking at the spreadsheet now with the liquidation company and everything we were saying was actually occurring at oh, Highway Oh, I can see that now, yes. But, I mean, at the time, again, facts were being, um, uh, facts were being mistaken for opinions. Uh, Dave, let they, me ask you a question. Everybody, everybody, just, everybody just thought that... 
a lot of this would be uh, opinion because, quite frankly, the they probably couldn't have accepted them as facts because some of them would have seemed so outlandish or right. just the stuff that they did just really, really did not want to hear. Right. Dave, at any point, you know, there was like around 2016, did you really have a hard time remaining silent and, and, and not sharing sort of, I know you guys were sort of, you guys were so close to the project and you saw certain individuals out there trying to sort of reveal some of the truth and share some information. And, and I've been openly critical of Pinside and their moderation staff for really taking a one-sided bias um, moderation approach to this whole thing where people who were trying to share were threat ejected, were, were, were banned, were, were, were basically, you know, their posts were removed. And how do, looking back on it now, Dave, do you wish they would have allowed more of the truth to be shared publicly so less people would have lost money in the end? Well, that's kind of a difficult question to answer because, as you say, I was so close to the whole thing and so far down the rabbit hole. And I was so desperate, if you like, for this thing to, you know, ultimately uh, work uh, because I had I had so much to lose um, if it didn't. So uh, it's kind of a qu difficult question to answer because I, I, I suppose, I mean, I was terrified at the time. I was genuinely um, scared. I, what, I, what I absolutely did not want was to be the person, to be the catalyst around which the whole deck of cards ultimately fell down. Right. That was the, I, I could not have um, done that. I would right. not have had the, uh, the strength or the courage. Has Davis Andrew contacted you after the, the, the announcement came that Highway Pinball was closing down? And, and if he has, like, what, what has his mood been like with you? Um, well, he hasn't, um, he hasn't contacted me since the um, Pinball News article. Uh, what about when it was announced that the com that the company was closing? Did he get in touch at all? Uh, he did uh, a, a few times because I mean he was he, he was concerned because he did have money sort of like still tied up in there. Yeah, it did leave me in a bit of a quandary because I mean this kind of process it needed to play out and it needed to um, become public at its own pace. I mean, this was only a, this, it, it was only a couple of days before the, the whole liquidation thing was uh, leaked anyway. But I, I knew that just telling him then would have been a bad idea. So when we did, when we met and we talked things over, I was, I didn't know. It's not like I wasn't telling the truth, but I was being evasive. And, um, ugh. well, the cat's out of the bag now, right? I mean, I think, the cat's out the bag now. yeah, people, people know. And there's more, there's more stories being told every week about what was really going on. I mean, this happens all the time when companies collapse. Dave, what, let me ask you a question. So, what, 
What do you think when you saw the number, the final number being over two and a half million dollars is, is how bad Highway was in the red? Did, did that number shock you or, or were you kind of like, well, it kind of makes sense considering how big the factories were, all this expensive equipment, we didn't get games out. What, what, did, that, what did you think when you, when you saw that number? Well, at first it shocked me. Then when I thought about it, it made sense. And then I remembered something from the very, very early days uh, back in the uh, Romney House in the, in the first few months when we were uh, reaching out for um, technical advice and people in the industry, uh, industry or whatever. Now, I don't know who actually said this. It, um, it might have been Roger Sharp when uh, the issue was of, of licensing came up. Might have been um, Mark Ritchie, because Andrew was, and I assume still is, good friends with the Ritchies. Might even have been J-Pop, because this was uh, before the whole um, uh, Magic Girl started going wrong. But uh, I do remember there was somebody, when Andrew was saying his plans, what he was wanting to do... Um, Andrew laughed this off, but one of the guys said, well, I hope you've got a uh, spare couple of million dollars to spare. Well, guess what? <laughs> Turns out that was the magic number. Um, yeah. yeah, I mean, we've, we've heard it, and Andrew says this. He actually openly admits this now, that he was just undercapitalized from the very beginning, and it was just never going to work out. Um, Dave, how do you feel about... It's, yeah, the, the... overambition as much as undercapitalization, but yeah. Yeah, look, but we see it all the time, right? The pinball is not an easy product to make. I think people sometimes oversimplify what it takes to make a pinball machine. Just just at one machine alone, let alone an entire company that's trying to compete at a large volume of pinball machines. Which actually, that's a question I have, Dave, because there's just been a lot of speculation. How many alien games were made when you know? But, but right, you know, at the end, how many total were produced? Uh, I don't know the exact number. Um, somebody's been saying uh, around 200. That sounds about right to me. I think around about 200 um, in total. And there, would... and, and there are like, and, and I, I saw someone, Dave, is trying to like sort of fix some of the engineering issues the games have had. And, and it seems like there's, there's various types of alien machines out in the wild there's the early builds there's the pinball brother boards there's there's almost like three to four different variations of the game based upon the time period in which they were constructed right. um, well there's which... very little difference between the uh pinball brothers boards and the uh highway pinball boards because they were they, they were being they were done under the same manufacturer and we were trying to get them sourced more uh, locally. Um, but that would have taken time. And it turned out that time was the thing that we didn't have as well as money because of the sheer overheads that, um, that, that, uh, that the company had been left with. Uh, now, I mean, you bring up a good point in terms of complexity, because I think this is one thing that helped to doom us as well. Um, you've heard about the Bacardi Baffle Ball uh, project, which was one of the, the, the early things that the, the, the company did. Right. Bacardi, Bacardi approached us 
for um, the uh, promotional thing. They wanted a simple game that they could uh, take around to places, put into pubs that didn't cost a lot. Uh, and they wanted about 300 units, and they, they wanted it done by this particular um, deadline. So Andrew pulled out all the stops to make that work, and he did make that work. Um, all credit to him, he did make that work. We did make and uh, provide nearly 300 units of this simple um, quasi-mechanical... Um, it was it, it was just a, 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 a simple, like... Figure eight play field, fiberglass play field with a couple of with, with a spring plunger at each end and the balls would go around. You try to get them into the other, other, other person's holes. Simple sort of pub game. We were in the first unit produced. And um, I do remember all hands on deck in that first unit. Everybody, we had all, all the shipments of uh, parts were in, and we were all building uh, building the uh, the games up, putting the cabinets together, putting the marquees, um, the light boxes on, and the batteries in, and the legs on, and all the, the, the decals, everything else like that. Everybody working on that at the same time. And it was... It was very tight on space at the time, I remember, but that's because we were trying to make three, essentially 300 games in at once in one quick run. And these were simple games. What I think must have happened was the wrong lessons were taken away from that because I expect... One thing that must have gone through Andrew's mind, looking at the, the, the tight squeeze and how how we were, you know, just um, scram, uh, scrambling around, just trying to get things things out quickly. And he must have thought, well, if this is what it's like with 300 baffle balls, what's it going to be like when we're trying to make 300 full throttles? And not considering the fact that... Um, you wouldn't be making 300 full throttles at one time for a start. But he, he must have thought, well, if we're trying to make full, if this battle, battle ball game requires requires this much space, when we go into full throttle and alien, we're going to need this much space. So we better prepare for that now. Right. I think that's what happened. I think that's why we ended up going into these uh, big units so much sooner than we needed to. It was also that and the fact that as soon as Alien, as soon as the, 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 the license for Alien, as soon as we got that, as soon as that entered the equation, see, my thought on the first game, whatever it was, was the I expected the figure that we would sell of our first game would be about 500 units. I've no doubt that if we had done things properly and concentrated on full throttle exclusively and at a reasonable pace and spent the appropriate amount of money on it without overspending elsewhere, I've no doubt that at that time, um, in 2015, we would have sold 500 full throttles. 
because we would have had the European market as well as the US one. Uh, I mean, the, 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 the thing bombed in the States, but it was big in Europe. And we would have had things like the Manx TT and the Northwest 200 in, in, in Northern Ireland, events like that to be able to capitalize on as well. I reckon 500 units would have been a reasonable figure. And my thinking, and my thinking was always, well, it's not, it's not your first game that's going to determine how, uh, how well you do. It's going to be a second game. Whether you could, how much you're able to build on what you've already done. I mean, obviously, if, obviously your first game needs to break even, but it's your second one that's going to be the teller. Right, and he and you guys must have been somewhat devastated when he announced Alien just as Full Throttle was hitting the market. Yeah, yeah, totally. But as soon as as soon as Alien entered the equation, the attitude became go big or go home. Right. Do you think, Andrew, did Andrew ever, because for the life of me, what I still can't understand is Alien is one of the biggest properties and themes of all time. And even when they showed the game, Andrew couldn't sell 500 LEs for such a juggernaut property. Did he, did you ever hear him, like, did he get frustrated that he felt like the artwork and the, the, the visuals of the game that he showed people, like, never really won people over? Like what? Um, like why didn't it sell? Do you ever? Do you guys ever? I mean, it, if Stern announced Alien tomorrow, I mean, is it just because Stern's so established, or do you think anything had to do with like Andrew's, you know, Andrew's adjustment of what a pinball cabinet looks like and the swappable play fields and all these things that people had to buy into? Did that hurt the company's ability to sell such a popular theme? Hmm, I've never really thought about that. Um, obviously, the fact that we weren't stern uh, was a factor. Obviously, uh, also, the, the, the fact that we were an unproven British manufacturer. It was also the fact that quite clearly the game was still in development when uh, we were showing it off and trying to sell. So there would have been the wariness from that side. I mean, if we'd showed up with... Um, a more finished game, even if we did change the coffee cam to the uh, airlock screen, for example. Um, if we'd have had a more finished and a more pro uh, polished product to um, to, uh, to show off, um, one which demonstrated that we really did know our onions as far as um, quality and such was concerned, I don't think we'd have had any trouble. Um, okay. It's it's the lesson that it's a, it's the same lesson that JJP had to learn. Right. So, Dave, um, I want to talk a little bit about Christopher Franchi's podcast tips in a second, but just to close the book on this, how do you feel about the GoFundMe? page that people have set up and i think it now has raised i think over four thousand pounds for you which i which yeah. I, I know people feel great about donating to mm. well actually this is a question that i do want to address uh because i'm actually rather surprised that this uh hasn't actually come up more often um and that is 
if the investors had been uh, taken over for 10 months and I was there with the, with the Scandinavians for 10 months, why do I still need a GoFundMe page now? Well, the answer to that is the um, this also ties into what, uh, one other piece of speculation, that being, well, was it the investors' intentions all along to take over the company, liquidate it and start again? The fly in that ointment would have been me or rather the situation that I'd been put in, which the HMRC, Her Majesty's Revenue and Customs, would have been uh, investigating by that point. Even if they'd wanted to liquidate, there would have been ramifications and repercussions from the tax man uh, if they tried to do that, because the the, the HMRC knew all uh, um, knew all about me by this point and hadn't believed for one instant um, Andrew's claims about you know voluntary work. But that's that's by the by. Here's what the difficulty was, though. Um, they the the Scandinavians really were trying to make good with everything. I mean, I see I've seen posts on Pinside with people who didn't get their machines and their, their attitude is I bought from this company. I didn't buy. I, I didn't get my product from this company. Therefore, all people associated with, with this company are crooks, which is way too simplistic on balance, on aggregate. I have to say that. Things did turn out less worse for people with the investors than had they not. More people at least got the machines and the refunds that they were entitled to than if the investors hadn't stepped in. As for my own personal situation, um, where was I? Uh, yeah. The problem with problem with settling things with the HMRC was that not only did um, any settlements related to the, the kind of figures that that the HMRC was saying that I was due, not only did it have to come from the company accounts, it had to be seen to come from the company accounts. They couldn't have just paid me off and said, right, that's the end of it. Doesn't work that way. It's got to go through the proper channels. And uh, the HMRC re wanted things um, taken care of as quickly as possible. Neither of the investors or I wanted to go down that path because, A, it meant that if I got a uh, one single lump sum, it would have had the shit taxed out of it. And I also knew this other point from, uh, from the investor's point of view. The company just didn't have the money to cover it. It could it, that sing, one single thing, um, pay, uh, paying me my dues and paying the um, associated penalties that they uh, inherited at the same time, which is right there in the in the liquidators report. You can see two um, penalties. HMRC penalties, one for 24K, one for 25K. One of those is definitely to do with me. 
if if the HMRC had forced them to 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 pay out all at once, the company would have would almost certainly have tanked there and then. So it was a very very sticky and delicate situation that we were uh, trying to handle over a longer term basis. As it turned out, the longer term basis turned out to be just as futile. But it's not like they weren't trying. And they... (sighs) So they weren't trying to just liquidate the company. I mean, I think a lot of these people who are upset... They really did have faith in in the product. Or rather, they had faith in what the product should be. Right. Okay, so Dave, one more question about Alien, then I want to I, I want to end on on Mr. Franchi's podcast tips that is really lighting the internet on fire. Um, <laughs> for people who own an Alien machine, do you do you think they'll be able to get access to the company that made the boards and made some of the parts, so these guys can at least keep their machines running um, for the long term? Um. Well. Not being an engineer, not not being that kind of, of, of technical and electrical engineer myself, it would be hard to say, but Ben Heck's opinion of the machine was that it was over-engineered anyway. So I would say the best way forward, if this were possible, would be to, to bypass some of that um, over-engineering. Um, reconfigure the I.O. system so that you don't need those massive great boards the prototypes that we uh, that we had didn't have those kind of circuit boards anyway they only had the um the regular I, uh, io boards and i know those you should be able to uh replicate somebody who knows what they're doing should be able to replicate those boards without too much trouble so i reckon i i don't think it's going to be a long term uh, issue if the community um, really puts their minds to it, with, which which they are doing. Okay. And do do you for all your work, Dave? Do you have a full throttle on an alien at least in your possession? No. Oh, is this criminal? All right. Well, let's do one thing first. Let's you and I take ten seconds, and I'm going to do this with all my interviews from now on. Let's take ten seconds. And do a what I'm going to call a Christopher Franchi moment of silence, an awkward moment of silence. Can we do that for ten seconds? We've been doing this. I've been doing this for the past hour. Sorry, <laughs> right, hold on. Like, well, no, wait. Let's start right now. Oh, um, wait. Do Do you have some game show music to play during these no, well, ten seconds? No, first of all, you just interrupted the ten seconds of Christopher Franchi silence. Let's start. See, I can't even do that right. right. See, Dave, <laughs> Dave, ready, ready, ready. On my mark. Three, two, one. All right, somewhere Christopher Franchi is just punching his computer screen. So, Dave, I know you saw Christopher Franchi. I'll, 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 I'll take cheap gimmicks for 800, please, Alex. <laughs> I know you saw Christopher Franchi's... Um, tips on how to make a great pinball podcast did did you um did did you agree with his advice um well it was interesting uh well he's 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 coming from radio uh he's he's obviously 
I got the impression he was thinking about this in the, in the same way that uh, he was thinking about radio. Uh, a lot of the things that he said had to do with the kind of charisma and the kind of skills that radio personalities um, would have. Um, that's the impression that I was getting anyway. Because, uh, I mean, if, 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 if you... If you can't get past the way a person talks, if they come across as as droning or they don't have that kind of energy in their voice, you're going to turn off after 10 minutes anyway. Right. What do you think the chances are of Christopher Franchi's new pinball podcast? What do you think the chances of him winning a Twippy this year? I mean, is it too early to call it? I think he's got it in the bag with, with those tips. I've never heard the guy speak. I honestly, <laughs> I I wouldn't have the first idea. But, oh, but then, but then again, but then again, this time, this time last year, we'd have said the same about Zach and Greg. Right, and they 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 did a great job with that show. Um, well, Dave, I really appreciate you coming on. Anything else you want to say before we um, we go on and enjoy the rest of our weekend? Any any final thoughts you have coming out of this whole? This whole historical moment in pinball history. Yeah, wouldn't we? Would we have a few minutes just to talk about Guile versus Blanca for a few for a sec? All right, I will give you a couple minutes because Dave wants to talk Street Fighter. So, Dave, you are a big Street Fighter fan, right? Well, I wouldn't say I was a world class tournament player, but what you what you said to me in emails about being um, a Guile player, Guile all day long, got um, got me thinking. Now. I'm guessing then you play Guile and nobody else. I assume you know Guile's um, animation frames inside out, right? Um, can you, for example, pull off the instant flash kick where you jump or you're knocked down and you know the timing of the animation frames so the instant you get up, you launch into the flash kick? Can you no, do that? No. I mean, here's the thing. Here, well, here's, no, here's the thing. Here's the thing about Street Fighter. We won't go. To, my pinball audience is they're already hitting cancel on this. It, it depends what Street Fighter you're talking about because I prefer like Street Fighter 2, Street Fighter 2 Turbo. I, I yes, like those better. Yes, me too. I've, yes. I can pull off a combo with Guile in Street Fighter 2 where – in Street Fighter 2 Champion Edition where you're stunned and I can do a combo that stuns you again, which I learned – eons ago from some kid in japan who was my friend in boarding school so like that's my that's my secret weapon but um we'll play at a show we also got to get orc to right. he's a big street fighter fan too we should have a okay. little bit of a street fighter competition but dave i appreciate you coming on the show i think the support from the community has been overwhelming and i'm glad to see people are supporting you and you know that you always have an outlet with this show to come on and talk and 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 just sort of clear the air and tell your side of things so and we also hope that there's um more pinball in your future because i think people want to see you continue to um make some stuff in the pinball industry and hopefully the pinball yeah. brothers can figure yeah, this I stuff hope, out i hope so too but i do have other things to uh occupy me for the present i've got a graphic novel to edit in fact as a as an artist that i work with uh, uh an american artist that i work with uh who's a comics person and uh at the, at the moment uh this the guy's created a universe and i'm currently uh writing for it right so we're putting material together and and hoping to actually get a 
graphic novel out sometime over the course of this year. So Great. that's one thing to occupy me. Should one last question: Should we end this podcast on the Marty laugh track from Head to Head Pinball? Was that a rhetorical question? Then that must be a yes. All right, ladies and gentlemen, we'll see you next time. It's <laughs> 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 making the whole thing. <laughs> Though the truth may vary, this ship will carry our body safe to shore. Though the truth may vary, this ship will carry our body safe to shore.